In this episode of 9 to i Talks, artist Chantel Martin, known for her characteristic black and white, 3D, spontaneous freestyle compositions, gives a glimpse into her creative process when she sits down with Alana Glazer, creator and star of Broad City on Comedy Central. The conversation was recorded on November 30th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So, Chantal, your style is really tight tonight. Who are you wearing? <laughs> uh, this is Chantal Martin and Chantal Martin. Chantal Martin. Mm, cool. Well, this is a collab, right? Yeah, so this is Puma and Chantal Martin. So that's good. And then your jacket and your shirt you just did. Yeah, I've been doing this since I was a kid. I just draw my clothes. I, I did this a couple years ago, but it still looks pretty good. It looks really cool worn in, too. It's really cool. So um, you are 92Y's first artist in residency. That is wild. We were, we were, yeah, give it up. We were backstage and there were pictures of Wynton Marsalis, Natalie Portman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you were the first artist in residence here. It's amazing. Um, what's it been like? What's it's surprising it's taken so long to have an artist in residence, but it's, it's been incredible. And yesterday I spoke to an audience of 900 nine-year-olds, basically. <laughs> and it was insane. They've been learning about my work. They've seen the work in the gallery. And so you, can you imagine learning about an artist and then getting to see them? So I stepped out on stage yesterday, and they <laughs> lost it. They totally <laughs> lost it. And it took so long to get them quiet. It was amazing. I was like, I wish every audience was like this. <laughs> like the Beatles for nine-year-olds? That yes. is so cute. I can't I, even handle it. It's the first time I ever felt like a rock star. So cool. And it's like getting, getting them young. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's good. Um, so seriously, to go over our conversation from your studio, uh, where'd you grow up and what was your, your family life like? Well, where to start, you know? Um, <laughs> so I don't know if anyone's familiar with a place called Thamesmead, but it's, it's in southeast London. And, you know, it's, it was one of these kind of housing projects that they built in the late 1960s. And, and you know, we know that these places typically have a bad reputation and they're not that nice to grow up in. And, and, you know, when I look back, I have fond memories, but it's also a very kind of like white, working class, racist, homophobic place to live. And the I, projects themselves? Basically, yeah. And, you know, I grew up brown with an afro. And, um, but I have a bunch of white brothers and sisters. I have a different dad. And, and so I'm the only, I'm the, I'm the black sheep of the family. Wow. And... Um, but I didn't know it, so you know, I'd go to school and my friends would be like, Chantel, why are you black and your sister's white? And I'd say, I'm not black, you know, I've just been in the sun longer, you know, because I'm the oldest of six, so I, you know, at wow. a very young age, I honestly believed I'd been in the sun longer than my brothers and sisters. You know, that's so weird. I also heard that bizarre rumor about another like, black girl in my school, the sun. <laughs> no, it's not, not the sun. Yeah. But, I mean, how did that, how did you figure it out? You know, I, if, it's funny because, you know, at home we had the same mum, we ate the same food, those were my brothers and sisters, and it was only when I would leave the home, right. it was only when I would walk outside, people would question who I, what I was. Mm. And so it was almost like people were bringing their emotional baggage onto me because at home it didn't matter. Mm. But outside of the home it did matter, and people pointed out the difference. And so... At a young age, I realized if I liked it or not, I had a passport. You know, I had something that 
in a way, allowed me to be different, but also made me an outsider from everyone around me. Yeah, it's like sometimes choiceful, but then I guess maybe often not. Yeah, and as a kid, anyone, you know, you just want to fit in. Right. So. As an adult, you just want to Yeah, fit as an adult, sometimes you want to fit in. So, but it, it, when I look back, I am so thankful that I didn't fit in, and I'm so thankful that I had this space and this freedom to be an outsider, because right. my brothers and sisters, they all had this pressure to fit in and be like everyone else. But if there is something different about you, be it the way that you look or the way that you think, or um, you are given this freedom to be different or be a weirdo or, or be an, uh, an oddball. Right, it's like a privilege that you're like forced to earn or something. Yeah, but you, you don't, you're not forced to earn it, it's just given to you. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Let's talk about your grandma. <laughs> that was so cool, seeing that work. Um, your relationship with your grandma, this like older white lady yeah. who does this hand stitching. And um, I just saw these hand stitched uh, works at Chantal's studio. And, you know, I'm like, what are you doing, grandma shit or whatever? You know, but <laughs> she's like, actually, my grandma made this. And it was <laughs> like, <laughs> excuse me, you know, sorry about that. But, it was um, this art that you created with your grandma as a way to talk about stuff that, um, you know, your racial difference, the yeah. class, you know, everything. Um, let's, let's talk about it. So my, my grandma, she, she passed away about two years ago, but her name was Dot Martin, and I think that was such a cool name. So good. Oh, and, my God. And, you know, so Dot. this is my, my grandma who was in her 80s, you know, very white, working class, you know, never traveled abroad, never learned wow. another language. Um, and, and so being of a different generation and of a different race, it was very difficult for me sometimes to talk about anything other than the weather. And I'm <laughs> British as well, so, you know, it's... Is a double thing. So, so to talk to someone older than you and, and to try and think of conversation, it would just be the weather. And even as a teenager, I'd just call my nan and be like, you're right, how's the weather there? And we'd talk about the weather for an hour. And, but, but what happened is I was, I was looking for a final show um, or a final project to do at my show at art school when I was leaving. And I've, I thought about doing something that represented me and, and kind of you know, the way the world saw me. And so I asked her, I said, she used to do these needlepoint, these, you know, this kind of stitching stuff. And I said, you know, Gran, can you, can you sew me half white 1980 in black and white? And then can you sew me half white 1980 in white and black? And so what I wanted to do this is because, you know, as, as a half white, half black person, you're only ever asked to denounce your otherness. You know, no one ever says, oh, I'm half white. They usually say, I'm half black, I'm half Indian, I'm half this. So I wanted her to make a piece that said, half white, 1980, black and white, half white, 1980, white and black. And she did it for me, and then after she said, what else do you want? And then that turned into basically a 20-year project where I would write her letters from wherever I lived in the world, Japan or New York or when I was still in London, and she would sew the piece and send it back to me wherever I lived in the world. And it was kind of incredible because she was such a bad employee, I used to say, because you know, <laughs> I, I would say, okay, dear Gran, sew me, go home, any color, any size. And she would sew it, but she would also send me, come home. And I was like, I didn't ask for that. <laughs> 
Um, but, but the amazing thing was is that, you know, after we would have a dialogue, so I'd call her and I see, I'd say, you know, thanks so much for that piece that says go home. And then I would say to her, Gran, has anyone ever told you to go home? And she said, what? What do you mean, go home? I am home. And, and I would say, no, has anyone ever told you to go home to your own country? And then we would have a dialogue about what that meant. And for example, we would do another piece and it said, English, British. And we would have a dialogue about what it meant to be English and what it meant to be British. You know, my whole family, they're all English, but I'm British. Because English is reserved for whiteness. It's very subtle, it's very English. We have a very subtle way of being racist. And um, deeply, 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 racist. deeply, subtly racist. Yeah. And, and so, you know, talking to my, you know, much older grandmother, you know, like I said, white, this older white woman, she didn't understand that her grandchild was British and not English and, and what the difference was. And, and we got to have a really meaningful conversation that totally trumped talking about the weather. Yeah, that is so cool. And you made it with her, you know? It's like this history of your relationship actually growing beyond this small talk. It's so cool. It was really incredible. We got to display them at the Brooklyn Museum in a group show there. And wow. we had about 80 or 90 pieces all on one wall. And just to see them all together was really incredible. Um, what was your experience like at art school? How did you get in? What was it like? What was the fitting in from your childhood? How did that translate to yeah. this place later? I guess I tell you a bit of the long trajectory. So as a kid, I was really fast. I was the fastest girl in my school. So I thought, OK, I'll be a runner. Um, and then I think when I got to about 17, I, I got a boyfriend and started my exams and kind of gave up training. And so I'm like, what else do I have to do? You know? And um, so I thought I would do art. But my art teacher said, Chantelle, you know, don't do art. You're not that good at it. <laughs> and, but Who is this? Mr. He was named Mr. Farrow. Um, Mr. Farrow. But, um, you know, if, if no one is telling you what you can do, and definitely where I was from, no one was telling me what I could do. So you would totally latch on to what people told you you couldn't do. And so there's this one teacher telling me, Chantel, don't do this. Right. And I'm like, well, no one else is telling me what I can do. I'm going to put my energy into proving this guy wrong. And so I applied for art school, and I got in. And who wow. was the first person I told? Mr. Farrow. Um, <laughs> got it. Love it. And, and it was really weird, Love because I, you know, I got into art school, and I was suddenly in this place where it was full of weirdos. It was full of outsiders. It was full of people who listened to heavy metal music. You know, people had dyed hair, and people were openly gay, and people were all these things that you wouldn't dare to be where I'm from. And so it was this incredible sense of freedom for the first time, and realizing, oh, like, you can be different and celebrated. It's OK. And so I really felt like I found my people. At the same time, I realized the way I approached things was so much more confident than everyone else. And, and so that was a weird feeling for me, because you go into art school, and there's all these people from different backgrounds. And some of them are coming from quite wealthy backgrounds. But they have no confidence. Mm. And then you realize, oh, to grow up where I've come from, you have to be confident. You, know, you have to be self-assertive. You have to be sure of yourself. And so, so I put all of that into my projects. And it's funny, for the first year or so, all of my projects were just performance pieces where I put myself out there and I put myself up there on the front. So 
I was, th that leads very well into the, um, mm -hmm. talking about uh, Tokyo and New York. Did your performance art start in London? It's a different type of performance art. So the type of art I did at art school, I remember, I was talking to a friend recently, and she said, do you remember when you took us all to the car park and then you swung milk around? <laughs> and, and, and I went to St. Martin's, so it's one of these fancy schools with a nice reputation that doesn't teach you anything. Um, but you realize you can get away with stuff like that there. And I realized I could do that and get away with it. And so some of my performances, like I said, is I was like, everyone, come out. We're going to the car park. And then wow. I'd get them all there quite serious. And I'd buy a couple of pints of milk, and then I'd just swing them around. And I remember at the end of, coming up to the end of my first year at art school, we was having portfolio reviews, portfolio reviews. And I walked into the room, and the teacher said, where's your portfolio? And I said, I am my portfolio. <laughs> And I, I cringe yeah. now, I cringe now, but... <laughs> I think it's pretty brilliant. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I got more serious yeah. or changed my work as I went along, but it was a very different type of performance to what happened in Japan. Yeah, so how'd you... What made you go to Japan? And it was Tokyo, right? Yeah, so actually, first I moved to Nagoya. So when I was finishing art school, it was about 2003, and I quite quickly realised I wouldn't get a job doing art, um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a really bizarre situation. You know, you get yourself into a school like Central St. Martin's, this prestigious, famous school, and then you graduate the top of your year with a first-class honours. And then you're faced with the fact that you'll never get a job in art because everyone who's getting a job in art, it's because of nepotism or because they know someone or because they're connected. And if you're not connected, you know, I felt that I would have to keep working my part-time jobs, and I didn't want to do that anymore. At that same time, all the way through art school, I got really obsessed with Japan. And I got obsessed with Japan because I went there for a holiday when I was 19 to visit a friend. And it was the first place I went to where people didn't ask me what I was. And it was the first place I went to where everyone was Nihonjin or Gaijin. They were Japanese or they were foreign. And they would say, Chantel, where are you from? And I say, London. And I say, ah, oh, okay. And then that was it. And I would wait for them to ask me a question about my family or where are you really from? Um, but it didn't happen. And so I felt really at home in that space. So when I graduated, I applied for the JET program. I didn't get it. So I applied for another English teaching job. And then I got that and it put me, it placed me in Nagoya, in the countryside in the middle of nowhere, when no one looked like me. Um, also, you graduated in the top of your class. Yeah, that happened. But What's that like? No one cares. <laughs> and, and so I just spoke to a whole bunch of students, and I said, you know, it, it was at NYU, where I also teach, and I said, it doesn't matter what grades you get, as long as you just finish. You just have to show up, because no one cares. You know, no one ever asks you. It's just about going there, about showing up, about making connections in school, but also right. making connections outside of school. Right. So back to Japan. So you, go, you went to um, teach English. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah, so I went to teach English, and it was, I started in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. I lasted about seven months, and I quit and moved to Tokyo. That's a long time in the countryside. Yeah, it was, it was a long time. No one looked like me, so people would just you know, stare at me. And, um, <laughs> and then I, I went and taught English in Japanese elementary school and Japanese middle school, which was incredible. I had such an amazing experience doing that. In Nagoya still? Um, that was in Tokyo. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so I, I quit Nagoya, moved to Tokyo, started teaching in the elementary school, the middle school, 
really great experience. And then at the same time started drawing again. And basically what happened is, you know, over time I started to teach less and then I started to draw more. And eventually someone saw my drawing, a friend of mine saw my drawing and was like, oh, I'd love you to do some drawing at one of my events. And, and that's kind of how the, the performance or the VJing started. So explain this, this like nightclub life that you lived and what this was and the vibe. Yeah. So Japanese clubs, amazing. Super high level of production with music and sound. You know, I think there's this cultural expectation for visuals. You know, so whenever you go to a Japanese club, be it a massive one or a tiny one, they're going to have the best quality sound and visuals. And, you know, it, they don't have that here. You know, you never go out in New York and then the next night you're like, oh, they didn't have visuals. Um, it, it, it doesn't happen, but in Japan, it's just, it's just in the culture, so it's everywhere. And so I loved dancing, and so I'd go to these clubs, and everyone's so happy, and, and there's such a really good vibe, and, and that's how I spent probably three or four nights of the week. That's so cool. So how'd you get to um, explain what the, this performance art was, you know, yeah. with the, and, and how you got there? Yeah, so I was VJing, so the first time I VJed, live drawing VJing. So imagine I'm under an OHP or a visual presenter, and I have my sketchbooks and my pens and post-it notes and magnifying glasses, and then what is under this camera is projected on the screen. And then so in front of the screen, you have the band playing, and then as the band is playing, I'm here drawing and moving everything around. And it was really incredible because the first time I did it was in a Japanese avant-garde club. And so it was just the weirdest music, which I didn't know at the time. My friend just invited me. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start drawing. You know, it's probably going to be a nice rhythm. And then the music starts, and they made their own music, um, they made their own instruments. So the music starts. They and made their own instruments? Yeah. What do you mean? So they circuit bended. They took toys and they made their own instruments. And the sound of them is basically like, and I'm like, oh, I've got to draw to this. But, but what was really nice is what I realized is why I was so shocked initially by the music, that made me hesitate. And when I hesitate, it meant, it meant that there was nothing happening on the screen. Mm. And so I realized, oh, there's no room to hesitate. I don't have time to hesitate because I have an audience watching my visuals. I just have to create. Mm. And so for the first time, it put me in a position where I realized I didn't have time to think. I didn't have time to plan. I didn't have time to hesitate. I didn't have time to be insecure. I didn't have time to be anyone else but myself in that moment when I was creating the work. That's so, like, you know, I, I came up doing improv and learning improv and... I never heard of improv drawing, mm. you know what I mean? Did you, did you ever work with paint? Has it always been drawing? Drawing is so accessible, and that's why I love it. You know, it's, I've, I've painted in school, and you know, we tried a little bit of everything, but I think there's, so, there's something that's so honest about a line. Mm. You can't hide in a line. You can't hide your mistakes. And sometimes painting or color, it's easy. You just throw some pretty colors out there, and your brain just tells you you like it. Mm. And when something is so simple as a line, you have to be confident in it. You, if you make mistakes, you can see it. And, and so I've always been drawn to that, being totally visible and vulnerable and honest. Mm. That's so cool. So, okay, so just to paint this picture a little more, or to draw this picture, sorry. Um, <laughs> in the Japanese clubs, you're like, your drawing is on the screen, you're improvising, 
the music's wacky. I don't, I don't know what to yeah. call it. And it's like you you were telling me about how you know you'd interact with what was happening, drawing what's happening in the club, and yeah. you know almost shout outs through your drawing. And like, am I missing anything? Is that is that what it was? And also, honestly, did the music get better? So so there, there ended up being two types. So there was this avant-garde road I went down where I was drawing to blue-toe dancers and, and crazy musicians, and that was more analog. And then I also got invited to do it on a more digital stage, and I would use my computer and a drawing tablet, and that I would use a drawing software, and then that would be connected to the projector. And so the screen would be black, and then I initially was drawing in white, and as time went on, I brought colors in. But one thing I really enjoyed about creating visuals like this is that in Japan, I think in more places now, but VJing was a huge culture there. And typically what that meant is there was a couple of guys coming in with their laptops and a mixer, and they would mix some movie clips together, there would be a tunnel, there'd be a woman running, right. there's a rabbit, why is there a rabbit? Right. And it felt like background. Even though the visuals were meant to be for us, it felt like background. Like random culture Exactly. But then as soon as you start drawing, and you're drawing in real time, reacting to the music, reacting to the DJ, you see your friend, you write their name, the crowd go woo, you write woo, you zoom that in, you zoom it out. The visuals become the foreground, and it becomes an experience that connects us all because it's not repeatable, it's created for the audience. And I got really obsessed with that idea of creating an experience that was so relevant to everyone that was in that room at that time. And had you done, have you ever done improv drawing analog like on a wall? You know what I mean? Like just like a big, like your, your large whatever, large-scale yeah. drawings. So like that. that's basically what I do in a way. So imagine, you know, going back to this initial realization that when I'm drawing, there's no time to think, there's no time to plan, there's no time to hesitate, there's no time to be insecure, there's no time to be anyone else but myself. I got totally addicted to that. Mm. And so I put myself in that position so much because imagine you put yourself in that position, what you're basically doing is extracting yourself because you put yourself in that position where you have no time to be anyone else, and then at the end of those 40 minutes or 45 minutes or 20 minutes, you look at what you've created, and then you repeat that, 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 you repeat that. You start to see what you look like. You start to extract yourself. You start to see the recurring lines, the recurring themes, the recurring spaces, the recurring shapes. And once you have that language, you know who you are, you see who you are, and you can take that to other mediums, and that other medium might be a pen and something as simple as you drawing on the wall. It really, that is where like the stream of, I never know if it's conscience or conscious, that's where that stream of consciousness comes from. It's like, you are the vessel for your journey, that's what it is, and here you are putting it on the page. Is that really in Japan, from analog to digital, I'm talking like that digital time, is that really where it started honing in this concept of like, I'm just a vessel for whatever's going on in here. It totally felt like, you know, we have the pen or you have your computer and we see these as tools. But it started to feel like I was the tool. You know, mm -hmm. I was being used to create the work. And when you're being used in that way, you just have to allow it and step back. Because if you force it, it doesn't work. 
But if you step back and allow yourself to be used and you allow yourself just to follow the pen and trust the pen, the pen knows what it's doing, I don't. And so you just allow the pen to go where it's going. The result is you step back and you see this work that is such, it has such confidence and it's so, um, it's so much bigger than I'll ever be. And, and once you see work that is bigger and more confident than you are, but you created it, there is this sense that you're in the right place at the right time, creating what you're meant to be doing. So then why did you come to New York? It sounds like in Japan you were like just nailing it. It's. <laughs> I mean, it's like a far ways away yeah. too. And New York is, you know, you're talking about like these bars and visuals and I'm thinking about New York bars, the currency is filth. How yeah. filthy. <laughs> it's hilarious how filthy this bar is. I mean, it just sounds like you were hitting home runs. What, yeah. what made you want to come to New York? I think a lot of us in this room, we might know someone that went to Japan to live there for a few years. And there's a trend. You know, people who go to Japan were lost. We're looking for a place to escape to. And I think what happened is I started to find myself. And when you find yourself, you don't want to be lost in, anymore. You want to be able to share yourself. At the same time, I also started to become comfortable. You know, I'm doing this VJing thing, I'm making a fan base, I'm making some money now. And I never knew what to do with comfortable because I'd spent my whole life struggling. Mm. And so when I became comfortable, in a way, I felt like I was flatlining creatively. And I felt like I needed to start struggling again. So, I, so creatively, I would be doing this instead of And I had met some Americans in, in Japan, in Tokyo, and they're actually quite nice. And, you know, because coming from England, we have a stereotype of what most of you guys are like. And, and, and so I met, some, I, met some, I met some Americans in Japan, and they became my friends. And they were like, you know, you should come visit Boston and come and visit New York. And so in 2008, I came to New York for a holiday. And for all those cliche reasons, you know, the people, the energy, the atmosphere, I came here and I loved it. And I said, I have to move to this city. So I found an immigration lawyer. I went back to Japan, did all the paperwork. And six months later, early 2009, probably not the best time in, you know, in the history of New York, I moved here. And I moved here, and I was like, oh, shit, what did I just do? <laughs> you know, and, and I totally got what I was asking for. I started, I had to struggle again. You know, um, I moved to a city where I had no money again because I spent it all on my immigration lawyer. And then I moved to a city where if people don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. I moved to a city where everyone's an artist. And I moved to a city where VJ wasn't really a thing. What does VJ stand for? Because here it's like MTV VJ. What? So it's like visual jockeying. Yeah, visual jockey. So like cool. a disc jockey and a visual jockey. Cool. So you come to New York. It's filthy. It's filled with artists all trying to make <laughs> do the same thing. Um, I mean, were you like, shit? Did you feel, or was it, were you inspired? How did you, how did you make it at first, yeah. just day to day? I remember going into the subway here first, and you know, a week later, I was like, oh, it's not under construction. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> is it, baby? Yeah. This, this is it. it and the whole, the whole city, you know. Because I mean? coming from Japan, everything's so clean. And yeah, I just re had this realization, like, no, this is it. Um, but. Yeah. I think what happened is I, you know, you get here and you realize that people don't know who you are, they don't care who you are, and everyone's an artist. And you get in this cycle where you just struggle to struggle. 
And what I mean by that is you yeah. wake up and you're like, how am I eating today? How am I getting on the trains today? And I was lucky enough that I knew some people that let me sleep on their couches. So I slept on a friend's couch um, downtown for a few months. And then it's funny, they moved out, but I made friends with their neighbors. So I moved to their neighbor's couch. Wow. So I was there for a while. And basically for the first year and a half of living in New York, I slept on couches. Wow. And, you know, it, it wasn't nice, and, and, but you have this sense, like, I can't go back to Japan because it's like giving up. And I don't want to go back to England because that's that place that didn't really support me. So I have to struggle and I have to make this work. And I can't give up. And so I think, you know, I just kept struggling to struggle to struggle to struggle until one day I realized that, oh, I've been waiting for people to give me the opportunity that I created for myself in Japan. And as soon as I had that realization, kind of a year and a half in, I knew what I had to do. And I basically had to create my own opportunities by using what I had access to, by using who I had access to, by using where I had access to. And basically, after that, it was just a matter of calling my friends, meeting people and saying, do you have a space, do you have a space, do you have a space, do you have a space? And finally, someone said, yes, I have a space. And I said, well, can I do this projection thing and I'll, you know, I'll rent a projector and do something? And, and so I ended up doing my first show in a friend's space here. And another thing... Was it a VJ show? It was a VJ show. So I did the VJ in and I, I met some people who were in a band and I said, you know, come bring your band and I'm going to do visuals around you. And another observation about New York is that if you just invite your friends to something, if they think it's cool and you do it again, they'll invite their friends. And it's super grassroots, but you keep, you keep doing that over and over and over and over again. And then eventually I got a phone call from someone that says, hey, like we've seen your projections. We'd love to hire you to do it at our family and friends event. And it's wow. at this place called MoMA. And, <laughs> you know, and I'd never been there because it was like $25 to get right. in. And, and so I was like, great. And they paid me, I think it was like five, six, seven hundred dollars or something wow. like that. And it was like the most money I had in a long time. And after that, just kind of one thing started to lead to another. But that one thing started to lead to another because I just never gave up. Um, that's so cool and exciting and feels so like tangible. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just picturing these nine-year-olds going nuts <laughs> for their Beatles and hearing this is so cool. Um, so it feels like really, as a consumer of your work, it feels very connected to your stream of conscience. Again, I, I don't know. Stream of conscience. Um, does that ring true to you? Do, do you feel that? And also, do you enter like a meditative state, a state of flow when, yeah. you, when you draw? Which it sounds like it because of the pressure that you put on yourself to do that before. Yeah. Is that, is that true? So in a way, drawing is a meditation. And when I was in Japan, I actually started meditating. And I think in many ways, I wouldn't say it, it saved my life, but it, I wouldn't be here today if I didn't find meditation. And it was really amazing kind of not to segue too much, but going for the first time to a tiny island in the middle of nowhere in Japan and being the only foreigner there and meditating for 10 days, a silent meditation, no eye contact, no speaking. And after day eight, my hearing got better. And for the first time in my life, I could feel my heartbeat. And wow. what I realized is that to live and survive in the world, we suppress our feelings. 
And I didn't realize that I was doing that until day eight in this meditation retreat. And so after that, you know, I realized that I need to draw because drawing is my meditation. And so coming back from that retreat, I drew so much more and, and kind of drawing without thinking because when you're drawing without thinking, you're not letting things get in the way. Mm -hmm. and, and so it, it is basically a, a stream of consciousness. And, and I think that, and, and not to say stream of consciousness isn't thinking, not to say it isn't thoughtful, it is, but I think it's just coming from a, a different place where you allow yourself to be yourself. So you don't, you don't like need to meditate separate. That is the meditation. That is you being you. Yeah. And also I wanted to ask, um, you know, you go from this VJ situation where everybody's watching and you're in this space and there's this pressure on it. Does it feel different when you're, you have this studio space and there's no pressure and there's no, do you have to push yourself to get to that place as, as though there's this context around it, but there isn't because you have this freedom, this almost embarrassment of choicefulness? Well, in, in the clubs, you know, it was great because people were dancing and they were interacting with me and I was interacting with them. In the studio, I actually don't do that much work in the studio. And when I do, it's usually when people are there because it's, wow. it's funny, if I'm left to my own devi devices, I end up watching Netflix or... It's Thank so God, true. honestly, to hear that from you. Um, <laughs> so I can't trust myself to be by myself to make work. So I, I think that's why you know, selfishly a little bit, that's why a lot of my work is done in front of an audience, because you keep me working and you keep me honest. Love it. On the other side, I think it's so important to expose the process of making art. There's so many artists today that don't make their art or who are scared to share the process. And I don't think you lose any magic by showing how something is made. I think what we do is we make ourselves so much more connected. Because if okay. you see me creating the work, you now have a greater understanding of me, but you also are a part of the work in a way. And so I'm not a performer. I just enjoy exposing the process. And by doing that, it makes me more honest. Because just like the clubs, if I'm drawing live, I don't have time to think because oh, uh, there's people watching me. I have to do something. I'm an artist. I've got to draw. And it takes that time away where I'd usually get distracted or start to hesitate or be insecure. That's so cool. I love it. Um, do you have like a, you know, I keep asking about meditation. Do you have a mental, emotional toolkit outside of art? Maybe art is it. But you know, therapy, meditation, making sure you call whoever, you know, every once in a while. Like, how do you, um, is art your mental, emotional toolkit or do you have one that you build to support the art? Yeah, I, f I think it is. I, I should reach out more and it's something I'm learning to do as I get older. But for me, as I always go back to drawing and I think that's because that's what I did as a kid, you know. Um, and can I ask the question and all, you know, I'll ask, if you can draw, put your hand up. See, look, so not that many people put their hand up, right? So it's amazing. As kids, we're given this ability, right. we're given this gift of drawing. And we're given this gift of drawing because it is a tool that enables us to deal with our emotions. It's a tool which allows us to be personable with ourselves. It's a tool that allows us to deal and explore our environments. And, and for me as a kid, you know, I drew because it helped me feel better. I, I drew because it helped me deal with my environment. And, and so as an adult, I do the same thing. And, and 
you know, I think it's such a shame that we reserve drawing or art making for artists or people in those fields because there's so much benefit that we would all get from it um, because of this connection from our head to our hand. Do you, do you have any tools that you use? I, I, we just started drawing again with like just these, um, just markers and like a giant pad. Yeah. And it, I mean, just three times or something and it's made me see things differently. I see light and shadow differently with, which then feeds back into you know, filmmaking. Yeah. It, it is so helpful. And when we were kids, we would get like markers and pads, my brother and I, for gifts, and then just spend hours and hours mm. doing it. And it's such a, you know, I see that in your work that it's um, a way to obvious, it, it feels so obvious, but the way you're describing it now, it's like you being in touch with your inner child. And that's what it feels like to look at your work. You know, I, it makes me think about these other layers, you know, we're like tree rings or something, and those little kids yeah. are still inside of us, and it feels that way to take your work in. Also, I want to ask your, um, you know, on your website, you just write about your, or the writing about your work is so on point. Obviously, did you write all of it? I worked with a writer that, you know, um, back and, lots of back and forth to kind of get it to that point, yeah. Because it's just so, I don't know, there's something about it that I'm like not quite wording the right way, where it's like, it's something so, it feels so deep in, in my mind already, mm. your work, that it brings up these other layers. And I'm like, how do you, how do you process your own work, you know? How do you process how people take it in? It's a tough question. I've, for yourself, you know, being an artist or being in any industry that you're in, really, it's about practice and process, and it's about practicing the practice and processing the process. And, and I'm very fortunate that now I've created a lot of drawings so I can go back and process what mm. I've drawn and continue to practice. And it's, there's this just cycle of, of practicing and processing. And as I just mentioned, it's really important for me to create the work in front of an audience. And right. I think that's also how the audience or the, you know, the people in those particular rooms, that's how they process the work because they're there at the point of creation. Do you um, appreciate reviews? Do they do anything for you? Do you not look at them? What do you do? I don't read, to be honest, that much. Uh, I'm, I'm like a big, big dyslexic, so it's, I usually get my girlfriend to read stuff if I'm interested in it. I'm like, can you read this? What do they say? Is it good? But only when it's particular. Yeah, if only if I'm interested and I'm a little bit curious, then she'll read it. Otherwise, I'm, I don't care. Um, when you when you talk about uh, the um, you know stepping back and seeing yourself in your work, do you see um, you know there's like a lot of there's faces and there's birds and and there's words and there's little people. Are you are you finding your themes ingraining deeper or slowly evolving yeah. into new themes? It's funny. I'm working on a project right now that is. A little bit of a, like a video mini series, looking back at my life, and as a part of that, we've been interviewing people from different stages of my life, and wow. and all the friends that we spoke to in Japan say, "Oh, Chantel, it's so great that you know people know your work now, but your work that you did in Japan was so much better." And, that and, sucks. And but 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 I think what it is is, and and I actually feel a little bit the same. Oh. So the work that I created in Japan, 
the drawings were, I used a 0.05 pen, so a really, really fine pen. And I would create these seven foot long, super detailed, intricate drawings that were quite diaristic, sort of thoughts and ideas and questions. And there was characters in there and, and it was creepy and it was cute and it was, it was the future, but it was the past and it was so much more. And I think I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that strong foundation. Because by creating these really detailed works, I got to a more simple place. And that simple place is this language of recurring lines, of recurring characters, of recurring themes or, right. or um, spaces. But what I've also noticed is that these recurring lines and people and, and faces, they're very relevant to my life and people in my life or places in my life. So as some of these characters come into my life, new people come into my life. As some of these characters or lines or words leave my life, people or places leave my life. And so it's, it is literally this language of who I am and who I'm with and where I am in a drawing. It's almost like the way you describe your art in Japan, it's maybe like pulled out just a different resolution now with this like thicker line. This It seems simpler, but almost if you zoom in, all that intricacy is still there. And also, the older you get, I feel like less is more. And, right. and, and because you understand yourself more, you've, you've known yourself more, you've seen yourself more. And so you can communicate with yourself in a much simpler way, but by still saying a lot at the same time. And I think that's why you know, the work or the line still brings so much space or energy to a place because it's gone through this journey. And it's amazing, I look at work I did as a teenager and it's so dark and it's so helpless and it's so lost and I look back and I say, wow, who was this person? And wow, like this person was so lucky that they had this gift of writing, this gift of drawing to get all that stuff out. And then I imagine, what if you don't do that? Like how do you ever get all that stuff out? Um, and I wouldn't be in this kind of light maybe even whimsical, spacious place if I hadn't gone through this journey. Definitely. Um, okay, so how you share your work. I, I really loved the process of this questionnaire and I also loved the feeling that I was earning your art. Is that, do you intend for that vibe kind of? <laughs> or am I in So a bit of a long, sh a long short story, right? So. I moved from Japan, I'm, I'm in New York, I'm an artist, I should work with galleries, right? Because as artists, we work with galleries and then that's how you make money and how you support yourself. And I got here and I'd meet with gallery owners and I would get introduced to galleries and I'd say, you know, this is all this detailed work I've done in Japan. And they say, we love it, where have you shown? And I say, well, I haven't shown. I came from the club scene of Japan. And they would say, thank you, but no thank you. And so there was this catch-22 where if you haven't shown, they won't show you because that means taking a big risk on you. And the gallery world is a commerce world. They need to make money. They need to take a risk on you. And so basically what happened is I realized that, well, I'm not going to not make art because they won't show it. I'm going to just keep making art in any way I can. And that's why I started to use everything as my canvas, drawing on myself, drawing on my shirts, drawing on my shoes, drawing on people, drawing on cars. And eventually what happened is I created a career that didn't rely on selling art. I created a career that allowed me to kind of lecture and teach and do installations or 
do experiences. And that was the art. That is eventually how I started to make money. As a result, I'm keeping or storing all my art and almost hoarding it, you could say. And, and so I, that wasn't my source of income. And so, you know, a few years on, people say, well, can, you, can I buy your art? And, and I'm like, I don't want to sell people my art. I want it. Um, but, but, but then I realized, oh, this is what it is. And, and, you know, I'm probably stupid doing this. I'm not sure, but you tell me. But, you know, it's, it's like adopting a dog. You want the dog to go to a good home. And it's like, as an artist, we're only going to make a certain amount of art in our lifetime. And I want my art to go to homes and to people who will love it. I want my art to go to people who aren't going to put it on the secondary market, who aren't going to turn around and flip it. And so I basically came up with this questionnaire that says, you know, I'm an artist, I love my work, I care about my work, and I want this to be more than a monetary exchange. And so I ask you questions like, who are you? Why do you want the art? Where are you going to put it? What did you want to be as a child? What's your idea of freedom? And, 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 and so, you know, you, you tell me these things, and now I know so much more about you and your partner than, you know, and, and it's about this relationship versus the monetary exchange. It's, it really, it's amazing. You know, I feel like you're, we feel like you're, like, in the house, you know? And, and the, the art is so personal to us and it, you know, we like talk about motivation and growth and like I look at it and I'm like, I'm gonna do it for you, Chantal. You know, it's like yeah. it's so motivating. It, did you start selling art this way only once you were in New York? Yeah, yeah. it, it happened just because of like what I said. And, right. But for me, it's, it's, it's almost like a different way of, of doing the visuals in the club. You know, I, I wanted mm -hmm. those visuals in the club to be relevant and I wanted it to create that connection right. and I wanted it to create an experience. And now, you know, for you to have the art from me, I want it to be a part of your family. I want it to be relevant to you. I want it to speak to you. I want you guys to love it. I want the art to love you. And, and so, so I feel like, you know, I want to create a book called Family, and it's, you know, my art shop with all its new families in, it, in its new homes. And, and um, it, it just feels so much more important to do it that way. And, you know, rare occasions like tonight, you know, all the work's for sale, but it's through a, a different kind of way, you know, and it's right. work that has been created not specifically for someone. Um, but in general, I feel like it's really important to create work that is relevant to you. I say I might be stupid because I have a couple of thousand pieces of my own art in storage, and storage is expensive. Um, so I'm, I'm having to start to you know, rethink this in a little way, but, <laughs> but, but it also feels very true and very honest, and, and it, it feels like the right way for me to create work for other people. It, it totally feels right. Do you ever deny people? I've denied a couple of people. Wow. And, you know, it's just... It comes back to that sense, like, if I feel like someone's just buying it so they can flip it, why would I do that? Um, right. and, and someone said to me, you know, you, you know, art's like children. You should just make them and let them go. You know, you should let, let them be free to live their own lives. Sounds like a scary parent. <laughs> it's not a... um, and, you know, I, I can see... Let I can go. <laughs> I can see their point there. It's like, Chantelle, you should let art have... The, have you know, you, you make it and then they have their own life. You shouldn't mm. try and trap them. Um, but, you know, it's just what it is. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I have, you know, I have my internal conflicts about that. But 
Cool. You won't find my work on the secondary market because everyone that has it loves it and it is a part of the family. I love it. Um, I have like more questions, but it's selfish, so I'll move on to yours, I guess. <laughs> um, Chantal, how does technology influence art? And probably specifically, oh no, not, not specifically your art. How does technology influence art? With the advancement in technologies, what do you feel the future of art could look like? What kind of technology could take your own artwork to reach your craziest art dream? Cool. So I work a lot with technology. So I've, I've been a scholar at MIT Media Lab for a couple of years where I worked on collaborative projects like circuit boards and, and maps that tell data and stuff like that. And I've also wow. been an adjunct professor at, for many years at ITP, which is the Information Technology Programming Department of NYU. And actually, my students have their class final at the Museum of Moving Image on Friday. I love the Museum so that of Moving Image. That should be fun. Um, but Technology, it gives us more tools. It enables us to collaborate. It enables us to see ourselves in different mediums and different industries. And it should be something that is harnessed by creatives and is harnessed by artists. You know, technology is all about the people behind it and the intention behind it. So the more we get artists behind technology, the better technology will be. Mm. Um, what is, air quotes, art to you? How would you define it? if you could. Art is a self-exploration with yourself and with others. Love it. Um, <laughs> done. Keep going, Love keep it. going. Um, what is one thing you'd like to try that you haven't as an artist? Um, what is one thing I'd love to try that I haven't? Uh, that's a tough question. You know, I'd love to try drawing on a big exterior of a building something like the Guggenheim or something like that. Uh, that would was, be great. I was just picturing like uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes. Oh, like Chantal that. Martin, the Brooklyn Bridge. The Guggenheim, that would be sick. If anyone in here. Yeah, damn. <laughs> Where the Googs at? All right. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self? The advice I give to artists now, which I would also give to my youngest self, is what I mentioned earlier, and that would be create your own opportunities yes. by using what you have access to. Love it, Ms. Martin, yes. Okay, <laughs> um, who are your favorite artists? Favorite with a U, because you're British. Also tough question. I find it really hard to like artists that I don't know personally because you don't see their struggle. You don't see their ups and downs. And so my favorite artists are the artists that I've been able to see and I've been able to touch in a way because I know where they've come from and I can see where they're going and I've seen those struggles and I've seen those triumphs and I've seen those challenges. And, and so in that I can relate to them and I'm inspired by them. I love that. Um, has your art changed a lot since the 2016 election? Uh, your messages are more timely than ever. Not really. Um, I think the, the messages, you know, I'm, I'm asking very simple questions, but, you know, the, the answers are quite profound. And, and, and so I would say no, but, you know, a question I ask everyone a lot is, who are you? Who are you at the core? without saying what you do or where you're from or the roles that you play in life, simply who are you? And I think that question speaks before and after any election. Mm. Yes. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is intimidated by drawing? 
We have a blank canvas there. Would you want to do some drawing? Sure. I didn't write sure? that question. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, but um, sure. So actually, I'm, this is a surprise. Um, I brought a couple of big markers there. Wow. So there's one for you. It's juicy. There's, this is one for me. And we have a blank canvas. So oh the blank canvas is something that is super scary, super intimidating, because what if we make a mistake? What if we do something wrong? So I'm going to show you a little bit of my process cool. and see what you can come up with. Okay, okay. Cool. So blank canvas, scary. What if we make mistakes? But we have a switch, and we can flip this switch. So flip that switch. Okay. And then now we can see this as a canvas for freedom and possibilities and ideas. And so I put the pen on the paper or the canvas and I make a very strong, confident line with a little bit of movement. There we go. And then I'll do another one. Strong, confident line, little bit of movement, maybe going from top to bottom. And so what I do now is you have all these negative spaces. You have these pockets, and there's clues in there. Mm. So those clues tell me what I do next. So for example, this line is kind of soft and round, like a side of a face, just like this one. So I'm going to do a little nose. And if I have a nose, I'm going to do a little mouth. If I have a mouth, I need a couple of eyes. Oh, there it is. And then we have a face. So we've got a little soft line there. So good. Woo. <laughs> okay, the lines are looking at something. And yes, so if they're they looking at something, maybe they're looking at some words, because actually words are just lines. Lines and words are the same thing. So then you would just look up and you would write something that would just come to mind. Lines and words are the same thing. We just give words much more importance. There you go. And then when you have no idea what you're doing and your mind goes blank, you just do these dashes. Yes. <laughs> and we want it to be a sunny day, so we're going to do a little sun in there. And I'm from London where my TH is an F sound, so we're gonna do free, free birds. It's like a joke. Free, free birds. There you go, we're done. That's pretty good. Gorgeous, that is really good. <laughs> Damn, wow, thank you so much. That was Woo! Oh my gosh! I gotta hug you. That was incredible. I gotta hug you for that. I'm hugging. <laughs> oh my god! I drew Sorry, you. I was That's so cool. Ah, cool. Wow. That's nuts. Cool. We did it. Wow, we did. Um. Woo! Cool. Okay, when you are exhausted, burnt out creatively, how do you take a break? To feel refreshed. Netflix. Yes! <laughs> the, the, the amount of choices don't overwhelm you? Um, you just stick to one category. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. What's your category? Documentary. Love. Great. Um, okay, you mentioned that you can't 
hide a line with drawing. So you, want to be con you need to be confident. Do you ever draw something you later decide you don't like? And if so, do you usually adjust your plan or start over? Ooh, I like that. Great question. So I used to. So I used to create drawings, and then at the end of that drawing, I would look at it, and it didn't feel right, or I felt like it wouldn't work. And then when I would reflect on why that was, I realized that there was a moment when I was creating that drawing where I felt like I'd finished, but I would continue to draw. And I realized that, oh, there is this internal, almost like gut feeling that tells me to stop. But we want our mind, or I want my mind, to keep drawing. And, and, and so what I realized is just to listen to that feeling. So the now, gut feeling. The gut feeling. So now when I'm drawing, I feel that gut feeling like, Chantel, stop, and then I stop. And then now I like my work. Mm. But before, it took me a very, very, very long time to learn that lesson because, you know, you, we all have ego. And it's like, body, don't tell me when to finish. I'll tell you when to finish. And then I wouldn't like it. Would you, like, adjust, like, a little line and try to make it or would you just try to add to it in another way? I've always worked with markers because you have to live with your mistakes. Mm. Cool. Um, how do you balance being an artist, performer, teacher, designer, and badass BJ? You make sure you get eight hours of sleep a night. Love it. Yes. Now, is that... Um, I'm not talking all REM, but is it like, are you, <laughs> is it really like bed to bed eight hours? Or are you like, I'm in bed nine or nine and a half so that I know I'm sleeping for eight? Exactly that. Okay. Got it. Um, who are your art heroes? Same, similar question yeah. to before. It's, you know, the, the people that are tangible. Cool. Did you <laughs> like your teachers in art school? I liked some of them. Um, it was interesting because, you know, at first where I'm from, we were treated like the bad kids, even though we weren't bad, some of us, because of, you know, I guess the reputation. Um, but I think some teachers would see the potential in us or me, and then those are the teachers that kind of gave you a bit of a hard time because they mm -hmm. pushed you a little bit more, right. but you also liked them. Um, Unlike the hard time Mr. Farrow gave yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I'm honestly like, he was jealous of your skill <laughs> and like didn't want you to compete with him. It's I'm funny, like, I remember he would always just wear brown and, and you know, he would say, Chantel, you have to mix your colors. And I'm like, I like this one, yeah. It's also like, mix my colors, all you wear is brown. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? I don't like him. Okay. Um, <laughs> Chantal, tell us about the survey you ask art buyers to fill out. What are you looking for? Do you turn people down? Alana, what was it like to fill out? So we did answer. We did that one, right? Survey. Yeah. What was it like to fill out? Really enlightening. I got to know myself better and ask myself questions I hadn't in a long yeah. time. And everyone, don't try it, because I have a very small team, so it'll take a long time to get through. Mm. <laughs> um, there was an amazing article this week in The Cut that talked about how art is the idea that there is something valuable in everything. And conversely, our shame, the opposite of art, Mm. turns everything into something that is flawed and a failure. The general idea was how we must turn our shame into art by turning our flaws into something of value. Do you find, as artists, you're able to turn your shame outward? Has art come out of the things you feel ashamed of? Yes. It's a hard question. Um... My art does, definitely. Yeah, so can you answer that, please? I mean, I'm like, there's like a tension that is hard to hold 
with oneself, with your shame. And our flaws are beautiful. And sometimes I find comedy as a diffusion of that tension, but I'm finding more and more to hold that tension and still turn the shame into something I'm proud of. Um, and it's not that it's not shame, but it's kind of that, it's also like part of getting older, it's also like the things we're ashamed of are hilarious, you know? <laughs> and they're, they're the things that connect us to each other as much as the beautiful things. Yeah. That's do, great. You, do you feel shame, that your art comes from shame at all? It, it does um, feel so confident. I don't think so. I, th I think it's on a different journey. Not to say that this isn't a journey, I just think I'm on a different one. Mm. Love it. Um, where can you get a good cup of tea in New York City, asking for a Brit. Oh, please tell me. It's funny, when I meet other Brits, we usually talk about where we get tea. Um, and I, you know, my memory's not that great, so I don't remember any of these good places. But um, if you have a good tea spot, like a good English tea, please tell me. I don't know if this is English or British I now prefer, yeah. um, but Harney and Sons in Soho is this oh. big, gorgeous like tea room, and it has all the different kinds of tea. Cool. Okay, our final, our final question. Uh, what is your next project? Uh, I'm just thinking which ones I can talk about. So, <laughs> I love that response. Big head. Um, so one one project I'm, I'm working on, which is, it's one of those, you know, as artists, sometimes we take on projects which are almost like self-inflicted pain. And what I mean by that is I'm, my next project is a one-woman show. Mm. And so it's about a 45-minute show of speaking, of live drawing, and of live composed music. Uh, with the speaking part, you learn about my story, my struggles, and the triumphs. But there's lots wow. of antidotes in there that we can all relate to. And then I move on to a drawing part where I'm talking about the blank canvas and why we all draw as children and the importance of that. And why I'm explaining this, I'm actually drawing. And then there's a part where I extract words from the audience, and then those words become a chorus that the audience sing, and then I, I use that as inspiration to sit down at a piano and then live compose and sing a song. Wow. And so I was looking for a theater for a little bit to, to workshop this, and then going back to that idea of using what you have access to, I thought, well, I have a studio. So I built a stage in my studio and I've been workshopping this and doing a couple of shows a month for the last couple of months wow. where I workshop this show. And I don't know where it will live. I kind of work backwards in the sense where I feel like you just build it and the spaces for it will become uh, present. I love that. And, and so, yeah, so this one-woman show that I don't know where it will live, but I hope that you all eventually at some point in the future will get to see it. We definitely will. We'll be following <laughs> your Instagram <laughs> and, your, and your website, which is gorgeous, to, um, to find that out. I can't wait to see it. Um, so thank, thank you, everybody, for coming. And give it up for Chantal. Yeah. Give it up to you. You are amazing. You are amazing. Everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, yes. Um, and make, to making your own opportunities. I love that. And, uh, Please join us in the gallery on the first floor to celebrate Chantal as the first re re artist in residency at 92Y. See you Woo! there. Thank you so that much. Was amazing. I love. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.